Today's message, we are going to finish our discussion of elders. But that's only part of today's message. I really want to address three separate items in today's message. The third one is the most often asked question. Actually, it's tied because two questions are asked together. It is the most often asked question that you all have asked me about in the last seven years. And that'll be the third item. The second one I was not so sure I wanted to speak on, but I spoke to our brother Gilson, and he strongly felt that I should, that the church needs to hear it and to understand how to think biblically about preaching and teaching. But we're going to begin by finishing up the responsibility of elders. Last time I spoke, we looked at the responsibilities that were exemplified through Paul in Acts chapter 20. And we saw that Paul imitated Christ, he exhorted the elders to imitate him, and Hebrews 13, 7 commands that the saints imitate their elders. So we have a hierarchy, Christ, Paul, the elders, all of us, all saints. And Paul pointed out 11 things that he displayed for the elders in the church at Ephesus during the three years that he had spent planting and building that local church. And there they are. I'm not going to go over them, but this slide is part of the slideshow that will be uploaded to our website, and you'll be able to view it there if you want a summary of the 11 things that Paul demonstrated by his life and his deeds for the elders of the church at Ephesus. And we said that these things, as well as what we're going to look at this morning, should be true of each and every one of us. As Moses told Joshua, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets. I paraphrase that, and I say, I wish that all the Lord's people were elders, that we all had those character qualities that our brother Gilson explained to us in his message on the qualification of elders. Were we all at that level of spiritual maturity that those qualities that our brother Gilson explained to us from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, were they true of all of us? And so the messages on elders actually have application to each and every one of us I was so encouraged that last week all of you or many of you came up to me and told me how applicable to their personal lives the message was. That even though it was about elders, they could see that it applied to them. And I'm going to try and do the same today as we finish up our discussion of elders. We saw the elders' responsibilities exemplified by Paul. But what we skipped over in Acts 20 were the elders' responsibilities that he identified in the instructions he gave them. So we'll look at Acts 20 again, just part of the verses that apply to the instructions that he gave to the elders. Our brother Gilson read those this morning. 
And also we'll look at some other passages in the New Testament in which instructions are given to elders. And in a couple of those, primarily they're given to the saints of the local church, but they involve the elders' testimony and the elders' leadership. The first thing that Paul makes clear from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Notice who he called. It was the elders of the church. And when they, the elders of the church at Ephesus, had come to him, he said to them, to the elders of the church of Ephesus, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock. When he says be on guard, this word on guard means to watch over, to care for. It's used of jailers. They were to guard prisoners and make sure they didn't escape. But that's not how how, uh, Paul is using it here as he speaks. It is used of sentries on the lookout, guarding to make sure that enemy forces were not going to try to take a city by night. But that's not primarily the idea here. It's, It's good to know that it has this sense to it, but here it's be on guard for yourself and for all the flock. He's using a shepherding analogy. The shepherd protected the flock. I think of John 10 and Christ saying that he was the good shepherd or the good pastor and he would protect the sheep. He would keep the sheep safe. I think of Psalm 23. If you want to know a full picture of what is involved in shepherding, look at the six verses of Psalm 23. The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. And then you look at what he does in giving rest, in feeding, in protecting, in leading and guiding. Look at the different things that are identified. The elders of a local church should shepherd the local church the way the Lord God shepherded the nation of Israel. What's specified in Psalm 23. Elders are to be on guard against spiritual danger. Protect the flock. Protect the local church from spiritual danger. But each of us are engaged in spiritual warfare, according to Ephesians 6. We all need to be on guard. We can't let our guard down, whether we're an elder or not. But elders have the additional responsibility to look out for the saints who are in fellowship at the local church. Elders are to oversee the local church. He says, uh, Paul says to them, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Notice, it is the Holy Spirit who raises up the elders. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart, in their life. But it is the church's responsibility, as we learned last month, In 1 Thessalonians 5.12, it is your responsibility to recognize those whom the Holy Spirit is raising up. See who it is who is serving in the way that an elder should serve. Bring their name to the elders for consideration to join the eldership of the local church. The Holy Spirit raises up overseers or elders. No man 
makes himself an elder of a church. That's not the way it works. No man can lead and shepherd a local church if the flock does not wish to follow him. It is the responsibility, though, of the local church, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.12, to recognize who it is that the Holy Spirit has raised up to lead and shepherd the flock of God, the church of God. Elders should shepherd or pastor the local church. Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd or to pastor the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. This is what elders should be doing primarily, shepherding in the full range of shepherding responsibilities as laid out in John 10, when Christ speaks of himself as the good shepherd or the good pastor, and in Psalm 23. Now you notice I've added after the word shepherd, the word pastor there. The word pastor occurs only one time in the New Testament. And it is the exact same word that is translated over and over again as shepherd. When Jesus Christ said, I am the good shepherd, when he's called the great shepherd, when he's called the chief shepherd, it is the exact same word, another form of that same word that we have here, to shepherd. So whenever you see the word shepherd, you can think pastor. When you see pastor, think shepherd, because that's what it means. How did we even get this word pastor? I mean, you know a lot of words come into the English language from Latin and from Greek, but not pastor. You got to go back six, seven hundred years. The English court, the king and queens of England, all the princes, the whole royal family, their cousins were the French royalty. In fact, very often, French was the language spoken in the English royal court. In French, they have a word, pasteur. That word means shepherd. It was during that time, six to seven hundred years ago, that the word, the French word for shepherd, was brought into English and pronounced a little differently, pastor. It really means shepherd. That's all it means. It's not a special theological word, although it's used of what elders should do of the role they should be in, it's used in the New Testament as a title of one person and one person only, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the good pastor, the chief pastor, the great pastor, or shepherd, if you prefer that word. Shepherds, elders, also need to be on the lookout for internal dangers. Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. So from the outside, savage wolves will come in, but also from among your own selves, men will arise. So whether that means from within the local church, or even worse, from among the elders. 
men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. We can't just have our focus on the outward. We need to look at the inward as well. Not just the elders, but every single one of us. The scripture says, guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues of life. It is the wellspring of life. We need to guard the heart, just as elders are to guard and be on the lookout for internal danger, every single one of us needs to do the same thing regarding our own walk with the Lord. Guard our heart. Guard our soul. Be committed to God's word. Elders must be committed to God's word. And in the same vein, I would suggest that all of us need to. We need to think biblically. We need to defer to God's word We need to value God's truth above our own opinions. We need to value God's ways above our own man-made traditions. Paul says to the elders, and I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. God's word is what builds us up. The Holy Spirit illuminating and instructing and teaching us God's word, helping us to understand it, sometimes through a human teacher, often when we read it alone. But it's the Holy Spirit who shows us the value of not just reading and understanding God's word, but living God's word. And it's able to give you an inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. There is future value, eternal value, in knowing and being committed to God's word now in this life. There is an inheritance. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and Luke recording those words, those inspired words, as he did, indicates that there is a future inheritance that to some degree is going to be based on our commitment to God's word and God's truth. Teaching, perhaps the primary duty of the elders is teaching. Paul makes it clear in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, which our brother Gilson spoke on, an overseer or an elder must then be able to teach. Now, there's all different ways to teach God's word. Some people stand up here and proclaim God's word, teach God's word to all of you. Others teach in men's groups or women's groups or home Bible studies or other kinds of small groups. What's going on in Sunday school right now is some people are teaching children. We're not told here exactly in what venue an elder must be able to teach. Look, our brother Peter Lima can teach in Portuguese. I can't. When I used to preach at a Portuguese church, I spoke 
I preached through Tony Oliveira, who fellowshiped here until his job moved him away. He would translate into Portuguese the message. But I can't do that. I'm not able to teach in that way. There's all different ways that people can teach, but they need to be able to teach. In order to be able to teach, they need to know God's word, as he says in Titus, for the overseer or elder must be holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with sound doctrine or sound teaching, so that he will be able, with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. I can tell you from interacting with the other elders at Grace Gospel Church that they understand God's word. They are rooted and grounding, grounded in God's word. Look, none of us are scholars. None of the elders of this church or any of the men who preach in this church, none of us are scholars in the modern sense of the word. But we do our best. We're committed to God's word, to reading it, to understanding it, to praying over it, to trying to live it out and to apply it to what we do here. And I believe that every one of these men is able to teach in one capacity or another. I was part of an early church plant. I I came in maybe six weeks after the church started is when I came to... I came to faith in Christ about uh, two weeks after the church plan, about after I was saved a month, I found out about that church, and I went there. It was in one of the elders' homes. Now, I can tell you, that man knew God's word. You asked him a question, which I often did. I'd go over his house or stay after and ask him a question. We'd sit at his kitchen table And he'd say, okay, take your Bible and open to this passage. And he'd say, read it. And then he'd explain it. And then he'd say, go to this passage. Read it. And he'd explain it. Sometimes he might quote a passage. This was not just my experience. This was anyone's experience who talked with this man. He was able to teach one-on-one. After about two years, there was such a push because we got to know him so well, even though we'd outgrown his house, there were now 200 of us, we pushed for him to teach instead of just the other two elders. He said, no, no, no. Finally, he did. He preached on a Sunday morning. It was not a pretty sight. No one ever asked him to preach again. But one-on-one, the man was amazing. You understood the interpretation of the passage. You understood the theology of the passage when you sat down and talked with him. By the time he was done, you understood it completely. That man was able to teach. There's all different types of teaching. And I can assure you that All of the elders here are rooted and grounded in the fundamentals of the faith. An elder, I had put the word elder after overseer. It's the same thing. Paul makes that very, very clear in Titus. For this reason, he says to Titus, I left you in Crete 
that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. Namely, if any man, any man, he's talking about the elders. Namely, if any elder, any man is above reproach for the overseer. Now he switches to a different term for elders. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Elders, overseers, they're God's stewards. They're the same individual. It's even clearer in Acts chapter 20, the passage Gilson read for us. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called him, Paul called him, who? The elders of the church of Ephesus. And when they, the elders, had come to him, he said to them, the elders, be on guard for you yourselves, you elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you elders overseers to shepherd or pastor the church of God. It should be abundantly clear that all these terms refer to the same office in the church, the elder, the overseer, the shepherd or pastor. Elders should shepherd willingly. Peter has a lot to say about elders in chapter 5 of his first epistle. He says, I exhort the elders among you. You know, it's almost shameful that Peter has to exhort the elders to shepherd. It's almost shameful that throughout Scripture, we need all this exhortation to do right, to walk and live as Jesus lived, to be obedient. But he says, I exhort the elders amongst you, shepherd or pastor, the same word that's used in Acts 20, that's used of Jesus Christ as the good shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Elders should always shepherd willingly. If ever there is an elder who is unwilling to shepherd, he should resign and step down. Shepherding the flock is not easy. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. But we should always shepherd willingly. So I exhort my fellow elders, if any of us, including myself, this is ever something we're not doing willingly, then we need to resign. We need to have a serious, on our knees, talk before the Lord, ask Him to change our heart, or we need to step down from being an elder. An elder is not a lifelong appointment. We're not federal judges in the United States. It is not a lifelong appointment. As long as a man is qualified and able to serve and willing to serve in the right spirit, he can remain as an elder. But if he fails in any of those, he ought to resign before his fellow elders do the hard thing and ask him to please resign. Shepherd eagerly and not for worldly gain. I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Never, none of us as elders or even believers in Christ 
should condition our obedience to God's Word, our desire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It should never be conditioned on, God, what can you give me? How much money can I get out of this? This is what's so totally wrong with the prosperity gospel. If I give a little seed faith money to God, he owes me big time. Send $100 and expect $10,000. That is so wrong. We should never do anything, not just elders, but there's other passages in Scripture that talk about this. We should never do anything for material wealth. In fact, to shepherd the flock of God may involve giving up some material wealth. Elders are to be a humble example. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. It's a humble example. It's following in the humble example of Jesus Christ, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. An elder should never lord it over the flock. No elder should ever be heard to say, you should do this because I'm telling you to and I am an elder. That man is coming seriously close to disqualifying himself as an elder. If he has that much pride that he's going to appeal to his own word instead of God's word. Elders are to be a humble example. They should first be submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ in their life. They should never lord it over. They are to be servants, not lords and masters. We have only one Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Elders should have an eternal focus. We all should. Our entire life should not just be focused on the here and now. We should have an eye focused on eternity. Peter tells them, shepherd the flock of God. And when the chief shepherd or chief pastor appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Always have an eternal focus. If you're an elder or one day might be an elder in a local church or a ministry lead, anyone who has spiritual responsibility to some degree for others, a father leading his family, a ministry lead, an elder, certainly. Always have that eternal focus. We don't do things primarily for eternal reward. We do it because we want to please the one who died on the cross for us and shed his precious blood for us. We want to do it because he commands it. That's enough, apart from any eternal reward or not. But nonetheless, when Christ comes, for those who have served him well, especially in the context of the elders, there is an unfading crown of glory. What we do for a short period of time now, the reward is an eternal reward 
Shepherd even those that you might find difficult. This is any of us ministry leads. You have people in your ministry. Uh, maybe there's personality conflicts. Even more so with the elders and shepherding the entire church, Peter gives this caution. You younger men, and he gives them a command here, be subject to your elders. <laughs> he singles out the younger men. Be subject to your elders. Maybe you have known someone like this. You know, I'm amazed at the young men, you know, they're 25 years old or they're late 20s, and they think they've finally arrived. They're adults. They're fully mature. They know everything they ever need to know about God and Christ. And because maybe they aren't given some opportunities to preach in their church, like we give young men opportunities here, they feel they can go out and start their own church. By the time they're 40, they'll realize that at 25, 28 years old, they weren't very mature at all. They didn't understand enough about the Word of God. They didn't have a deep enough, mature enough relationship with God and Christ. What does Peter exhort those younger men to do? Be subject to your elders. And then he extends it to all of us. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Christ taught this. This is what Christ said. He said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Christ taught that multiple times in the gospel. The Christian way is different than the way of the world. The way of the world is to climb the ladder and step on everybody underneath you. Use them to boost your position on the ladder. The Christian way is different. To go high, you go low. To, exalt, to be exalted, you humble yourself. The Christian way is the exact opposite of the way of the world. When I was called in, uh, it was December uh, 2015, I was called to meet with all of the elders and the diaconate committee in the conference room uh, to talk about possibly coming on staff here. Um, a lot of questions were fired at me. Uh, Gilson and Fred may remember some, but the two, what I thought were the best, most insightful questions came from the founding pastor's son-in-law, Trey McDonald. He said to me, do you think seminary, one of his questions was, do you think seminary has qualified you to be a pastor, to be a shepherd, an elder at Grace Gospel Church? And I still remember what I said to him. I said to him, if by qualify you mean be prepared, I said yes. But if you mean qualified, I said no, not at all. The only qualifications I have to serve the Lord Jesus Christ are the same qualifications that every man around the table has. I wouldn't recommend this as an interview technique, okay? I said, here are my qualifications. God has chosen the foolish things of this world 
to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the mighty. God has chosen the base things of this world to put to shame the noble things. In summary, God has chosen the things which are not to put to shame the things that are. My only qualifications are I'm foolish, I'm weak, and I'm base. I'm an have not and an are not. Those are the qualifications of all of us, elders or otherwise, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not by might nor by power, but it's by His Spirit. None of us brings anything to the table but a willingness. And even that willingness, I would submit to you, comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. We should shepherd everyone. We should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. What he's telling the young men here is, be patient, humble yourselves. Why? That God may exalt you at the proper time. And then he says this, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Or in the King James Version, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Yes, there's a general principle there, and in the trials of life, we can use this verse. But think of the context here. This is submission to one another and to the elders in the local church. This could cause anxiety. I'm not going to be exalted. I've got to trust God patiently to exalt me at the right time. This can cause anxiety. This is the context. Don't worry Trust in God's timing to exalt you, to be a deacon or deaconess, to be a ministry lead, to teach a Bible study, to proclaim the Word of God on a Sunday morning if the Holy Spirit has gifted you to do that. Humble ourselves, trust in God and His timing, all of us in all the different areas of our life especially in those that we desire most of all. Hebrews 13, just two more verses here. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their conduct or their way of life, imitate their faith. Elders are to be an example. But this verse, while it talks about elders, those who led, those who taught, God's word, clearly the elders of the church, it's actually addressed to everyone. The command is imitate the faith of the leaders. That is command. They are to be an example for us. We are to imitate their example. Just like Paul said, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. Shepherd like those who will give an account. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. The elders keep watch over your souls, your eternal, precious souls. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his eternal soul? Elders are the key. That's a precious charge a precious trust that is given to the elders to watch over to guard to protect to feed to nurture to love the precious souls of those in fellowship in the local church the commands are obey 
and submit. Why? For elders keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Look, in Scripture, we are all going to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even believers. Not for sin that's been dealt with at the cross. The unbeliever has the same rendezvous with destiny and they will give an account to Christ for their rejection and willful rebellion against Him. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, trust in Him and what He did on the cross, shedding His precious blood and dying to obtain salvation for as many as who will believe in Him. Turn from your sin, repent, and turn to Jesus Christ and cry out to Him. We will all one day give an account. Here, though, in this verse, do you notice something? Elders are going to give an account, not just about them. Let them, the elders, do this. Give the account with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. Wow, I don't know if you ever saw that before. Elders are going to have to give an account, not only of their own life, not only of their faithfulness to living what they teach, not only an account of their stewardship, which we all will do, they need to give an account of everyone allotted to their charge. They need to give an account for every little lamb in the flock that God has entrusted to their care. Elders, the exhortation here to everyone else is, let the elders do this with joy by being obedient and submissive, not with grief, because when, the, when Christ says, so what did you think about brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so? Were they easy to shepherd? I don't know exactly how he's going to ask it, but just to give you an idea, if the, if the account of shepherding can't be given with joy, but is given with grief, it's unprofitable for you. Apparently, there is some aspect of eternal heavenly reward that is contingent upon the account that the elders give. Well, I, I, I can tell you at, at, at Grace Gospel Church, all of you who are here, anyone new, I, I may not know you, but those of you have been here for the last seven years that I've been here, or much of that seven years, I can give a joyful account. You all are wonderful, devoted, committed believers to Jesus Christ. I know I've had some differences with, a, with some at different times, but what always came through and that is a love for the Lord, a love for me, and I can give a joyful account of each and every one of you. I thank the Lord for all of you. Now I want to come to the second thing, preaching and teaching. I was not sure I wanted to talk about this, but my brother Gilson exhorted me and encouraged me to talk about this. You already know that I believe that when there are terms, biblical terms, that are found in Scripture, we should first understand 
what the Scripture means, how the Scripture defines those terms, and as much as possible, we should use those terms in the same way the Scripture does. Now, I could, I could give you a list of some of those terms, but we don't have time, and I want to focus on what's on the slide, preaching and teaching. Do you know how the New Testament uses the word preach? The word testament, the New Testament uses the word preach in every single instance when it's talking about Christian truth, in every single instance, but possibly, possibly one instance, but in every instance, preaching is the term reserved for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. It is not used of communicating God's truth to the believer in Christ, the church when it's gathered together, except in maybe one case. And we'll, I'll tell you what that case is in a moment. And then you can see what's involved there. It's going to shock you. Teaching is the term that is used again and again for the communication of God's truth to the believer in Christ when the church is gathered together. In we should try to use these terms biblically. I admit, I don't always use preaching biblically. I don't always restrict it to communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. But we should know how the New Testament uses it. So what's that one case where preaching might possibly be talking about communicating God's truth, God's word, to the gathered believers in Christ? It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. I say possibly because it begins with preach the word. That's what Paul tells Timothy. Preach the word, and it ends with, several verses later, do the work of an evangelist. So it might be talking about the gospel. I don't think so, although it would be convenient for me if it did. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and, hear this, teaching. Preach with teaching is what he says. You cannot be a preacher without teaching. There, it, there has to be teaching. If you're teaching, you're preaching as far as the New Testament is concerned. If you're preaching with no teaching, you're not preaching in the New Testament sense at all. You're preaching in some man-made motivational sense, but not in a biblical sense. Preaching in that one passage involves teaching. It's very clear. This is what the Scripture says. I'm not making this up. Read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, and you'll see that everything that I said is found right in that passage. Now, I want to get to the question that is asked most of me in the last seven years. It's coupled with another question. I've already answered the other question several weeks ago, last month. We talk about one-man leadership in the church, often called the pastor or senior pastor, 
or a plurality of elders. And I told you, I can't teach you anything about one-man leadership in the church. It's not found anywhere in the New Testament except in one passage where the man is going to be rebuked by the Apostle John in 3 John because he wanted to be the one man in charge of the church. It's simply not found, and the only time it is, it's negative, and it's going to get a rebuke. Well, right along with that, one man in charge versus a plurality of elders, and I trust by now, after four messages covering elders, five if you count Gilson's, we understand elders are throughout the New Testament. What about one teacher, in many churches it's the senior pastor, versus multiple teachers? Are multiple teachers found anywhere in Scripture? Is one person communicating God's truth to the church when it gathers together, is that found anywhere in Scripture? In fact, it's not. I can't teach you on it because there's not a single passage where how God's truth was communicated to the church, there's not a single passage that shows one man doing the teaching. It's totally foreign to the Scriptures. Yes, I know most churches have it. There's over 10,000 churches that don't, though. And I don't just make that number up. I know of their background. They follow the Scriptures as closely as possible whenever feasible. How about multiple teachers? Are they ever found in Scripture? In fact, they are in three passages. And it's from a diverse geographical region. A little finger of land of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It's down here, Syria, Lebanon, Israel. So it's way down here. If you go way to the north and the west of Asia Minor, there's Ephesus. And then if you cross the Aegean Sea to Corinth, you now are into Europe. It's all over. Paul, five times in the New Testament, says that what he taught in a particular church was taught in all the churches. What he said to practice and do in one church, he said all the churches of God do. The teaching you see in one epistle is not merely the teaching for that one church. The same teaching and practice Paul makes clear five times in the New Testament is done in all the churches. Here, in the case of multiple teachers, I'm going to show you three passages. Antioch, Corinth, and Ephesus. Churches throughout the Roman Empire. The first one, multiple men communicated God's truth at Antioch. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets, plural, so two or more prophets, and teachers, plural, two or more teachers. There's five of them listed. Barnabas and Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who was raised in Herod Antipas' household, Herod the Tetrarch, and lastly, Saul, who would be called Paul, the apostle. Barnabas may have been first because he was the main prophet and teacher. Saul may have been a minor one, or it just could be age. Barnabas was older, and, 
and uh, Saul or Paul was a younger man, it may go by age and not by prominence. The thing we take away from this is that at Antioch, there were multiple prophets and teachers. What's significant about this is New Testament historians and scholars will tell you this. The church met one day a week on Sundays. Slaves had one day off. Businessmen closed their business one day a week. Workers were given one day off a week. That was on Sunday. The early church met from early morning, just past sunrise, all the way to almost sundown in the evening. One entire day spent together as a Christian community, as a Christian family. They had the Lord's Supper every Sunday. They had an agape feast, a love feast, a communal meal every Sunday together. That's how they met. So, this makes this even more significant. They met multiple times. People would preach and teach God's word to the church gathered together. Sometimes, Paul might run long, even till midnight, and a young man might fall asleep and fall from the rafters and break his neck and die. And Paul would raise him back to life. Don't anyone do that here? Because I can't raise anybody back to life. I'm not that Paul. In the same day, not just Sunday to Sunday, but in the same day, multiple individuals communicated the truth of God's word at Antioch. At Corinth, multiple men communicated the truth of God's word even in the same meeting time. Not just throughout the day, but in the same meeting time, the same hour, so to speak. The same two hours, so to speak. Paul writes, as he's correcting the Corinthians regarding their excesses, let two or three prophets speak and let the others, the other prophets, pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another, another prophet who is seated, the first one must keep silent. Imagine that. I'm preaching up here, and my brother Jim Silvera says, I have a word from the Lord. I want to give a word of exhortation. i got to pipe down. Now, some of you may like that. You're probably encouraging Jim, speak up. But that's what happened there. Now, it was not just teaching. It was prophecy, where the exact words that came out of a person's mouth were the exact words that God or Christ would say. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the other prophets pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another prophet who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy throughout that day-long gathering, one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Imagine that. In the same time period, the same hour, so to speak, Multiple individuals would communicate God's truth. Not just Sunday after Sunday after Sunday like we do at Grace Gospel Church. We do it that way because we don't meet for an entire day on Sunday. Should we? Should we not? That's a different question. Some things there's flexibility about. 
we try to capture the whole church hearing the truth of God's word from multiple individuals by doing it Sunday after Sunday. The method differs a little, but the spirit and intent is the same. There's a lot of practical reasons to do this. I'm not going to go into those. If you want to know what those are, ask me after. I'll be happy to tell you, and it'll give you something to think about. You may disagree with the practical reasons because they're coming from this Paul, but you can't disagree with the spiritual reasons. They're coming from Paul the Apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If Paul the Apostle's wrong, then the Holy Spirit is wrong, which we know that's not the case. And the last passage, this one's really good. At Ephesus, multiple men taught God's truth at Ephesus. You know, in a lot of languages, they're singular and plural. A runner and runners. We put an S in English to make it plural. Other languages do it in different ways. Those of you who speak Portuguese, you know that the ending of the words change depending on whether it's I speak or we speak. In Spanish, it would be hablo, I speak, or hablemos, we speak. The ending changes, but you can see it's the same word. Greek is the same way. You can tell from the spelling whether a word is singular or plural, whether the ones doing something is one person or multiple people. So, the elders, plural. Who, a plural in Greek. Not in English. It's spelled the same, but it's plural. Rule, plural again in Greek, the original language that the New Testament was written in. Let the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those, plural, who, a plural form of who again. Work hard, plural, in the word, and teaching, plural. Do you see that? Here, elders, plural, and plural teachers again. Antioch, Corinth, Ephesus. These are the only passages in the New Testament that show us how truth was communicated in the local church when they gathered together on Sundays. It is always multiple individuals. At Grace Gospel Church, we want to be as biblical as possible. We don't just want to do things because other churches do them. It may not be popular to do what God says in his word. But let me ask you this. If the Holy Spirit thought it was wise in the early church for multiple individuals to teach God's word, if the Holy Spirit thought it was wise then, why is it not wise now? We need to answer that question. You need to have an answer to that question, a good answer. Oh, I don't like it. That's not a good answer. It's an answer. I'll grant you that. But the Holy Spirit thought it was wise. Why is it not wise now? Obviously, it is wise. God never changes according to the Scriptures. So let me ask you, are you what are you thinking this morning, particularly about the local church, about leadership in the local church, and how that leadership is displayed and expressed when the church gathers together. 
Are you thinking biblically? I pray to God, I hope to God that you are. I know this has been a very big pill to swallow. We're done with, with elders. We're going to go on to other things that will be more practical, more enjoyable to hear. But I ask you to just prayerfully take these things to heart. When the slideshow is up this afternoon, if you need to look at it to refresh your memory and go to the scriptures, please do that. Satisfy yourself that what you've heard today from me is found in the scriptures. And if you have any questions, uh, myself or any of the other elders would be happy to answer them for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we desire so much to please you with our life. The way we live will always grow out of what we believe, what we know and believe to be your will, your ways. Dear God, I pray that you would humble all of us under your mighty hand so that you may exalt us at the proper time. Give us ears to hear your truth. Remove the scales from our eyes as we read your word that we may behold your truth and the beauties of God and Christ in it. Dear God, I pray that you would exalt yourself as we learn all of your truth and your truth sets us free. We ask all this for your glory and your name's sake. Amen.